A mountaintop experience. Greg just read uh, Moses' mountaintop experience out there seeing the glory of God. This morning in Luke, Luke chapter 9, we're going to be looking at another mountaintop experience. Uh, The Mount of Transfiguration. It occurs, uh, a story I think we're all quite familiar with. So here's Peter and James and John, and Jesus takes them up onto the mountain. And he appears before them in glory. Why? That's the question. Why exactly is God doing this? Why is Jesus doing this? And why is it only these three? Uh, you know, there's 12 apostles. Judas, we could maybe, you know, uh, excuse. But it's clear that there is a reason that this event is occurring. If we look at the context, as usual, when we ask a question about the scriptures, context, context, context. So the context leading up to this is back in verse 20 through 26. He says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, well, I know who you are. You're the Christ of God, which, of course, is exactly true. And he instructs them, don't tell anyone, and then proceeds to explain to them. The Son of Man is going to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Don't worry, he'll raise up on the third day. And then he says, if you want to come after me, you're going to have to take up your cross and you're going to have to take it up daily and follow me. And if you wish to lose your life, uh, save your life, you need to lose it. And if you lose your life for my sake, then you will save it. In fact, it won't do you any good if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul. And don't be ashamed of me or my word, otherwise I will be ashamed of you. These guys have just received some of the most devastating news that could possibly be given to them. They, Peter thinks he's finally got it. Ah, Jesus is the Christ, right? I, I've got it. I, I, I finally have it figured out here. This is, this is what's going to happen. You are the Messiah. And so all kinds of great good things are going to occur. This is going to be fabulous. We're going to sit on thrones and we're going to overthrow the Romans and and Israel is going to rule the world and this is just great. And then Jesus proceeds to completely destroy that entire idea. Oh, by the way, yes, I am the Messiah. One, don't tell anybody. Two, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and die. You're kidding me. You're going to go up and to Jerusalem. What exactly are we doing here? Why have we left our home and family and business and running around out here for... Why are we doing all this? You're just going to go up to Jerusalem and die? These are men who have just received some of the most devastating news possible. This has just completely spun their theological world, their personal world. Everything has just gone... Haywire. None of this makes sense to them. So they need assurance. These particular three guys. um, Jesus says to them immediately after this, right? He he no sooner gets done telling them this. uh, About a week goes by, give or take. And then he says, truly I say to you, there are some of you standing here who will not taste of death until they see the kingdom of God. Some of you are going to actually see the king in his glory. This miracle is not being done for their entertainment. 
This is not being done so that they can just kind of say, hey, you know, I, boy, I tell you, I really saw something. Uh, they are going to get this miracle because these three men are going to need stability more than anyone else, even amongst the 12. These are the guys who are going to make the church work. So they need to have assurance that the truth they are about to speak is the truth. So Jesus says to them, you're going to see the kingdom of God. Now, they're not going to, the full kingdom of God does not eventually arrive here until the millennium shows up. For the record, there are, you probably are aware, there are various views on how the world is going to end. Uh, Some folks think that uh, we're going to go through the tribulation. Some folks think there isn't even going to be a tribulation. Personally, I think that we are going to be taken out of here before the tribulation. I don't think the church will go through that. And I think we will come back with Jesus at the end of the tribulation, and then we will have a literal millennium. There are other people who have other views, and there are other good people, godly people, who preach the gospel. Um, Pretty much, if you think that Jesus could come back at any moment... Uh, we're more or less on the same page. It's what happens after Jesus comes back that we could get into a discussion about. But you know, if you think Jesus could arrive at any moment, I think we're all on the same page. Preach the gospel to everyone. So some eight days or about a week after these sayings, he now takes Peter and John and James and he goes up into this mountain to pray. Peter, John, and James. Peter, of course, we... You know, it's not like Peter needs a whole lot of introduction here, but Peter, of course, becomes the chief apostle. This is the guy who's going to be the foundation of the church. But remember, Peter is going to actually deny that he even knows Jesus three times. And he's going to have to recover from that. That's a pretty devastating moment for him. Uh, this event, this, the transfiguration, is going to be one of many events, but a significant one that is going to help him, I think, maintain some stability. He'll go on and write First and Second Peter. John is going to live the longest of any of the disciples. Uh, John is going to have to endure through his whole life. He'll see the risen Lord, but we'll see in a minute as we look through this account. This is, this is even different than that. Uh, he will write, of course, his gospel and then First, Second, and Third John. James is the brother of John. So it's Peter and Andrew. Andrew's not here at the Transfiguration. But it's James and John. Now, the John of James and John, he is going to be killed early on in the church's history. This is not the James who is going to write the epistle of James. He's not the James who's going to preside over the church in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council. That is James, the brother of Jesus. This is James, the brother of John. Different, different James. Important to get that. Because he is going to be the first martyr. That's going to occur in Acts chapter 12. That Herod is going to lay hands on some of those who belong in the church, to the church. He's going to mistreat them and he's going to kill James with the sword. James, the brother of John, is going to be put to death with the sword. He's going to be the first of the apostles to die. John is going to have to live with the fact that his brother was killed. Uh, 
the transfiguration, all of this is going to figure into these guys having the stability they need to continue, particularly James, uh, John, and Peter are going to have to continue. James, as they're about to take him out and kill him, uh, is he going to deny Jesus? Is he going to, is he going to say, no, no, it's just a mistake? I, oh, no, no, he has... He knows that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. This is not random. Nothing that occurs in the life of the saints of God is random. Jesus picked these particular three guys to go with him to see this event. This is probably one of the most significant miracles in the entire life of Jesus. Uh, the only one that might exceed this one is the, is the actual resurrection. Short of that, the, and actually theologically, this may very well be the most theologically important miracle that Jesus is going to do. So, here's how it goes. While he's praying, the appearance of his face becomes different and his clothing becomes white and gleaming. Jesus, by the way, in case you hadn't noticed this, Jesus prays a lot. Jesus goes up into the mountains and prays all the time. This is one more time. He has taken Peter and James and John with him, and he's gone up into the mountain, and he's praying. You might also notice something else. While Jesus is praying, the disciples do a lot of sleeping. That's like, you know, really? Uh, Here Jesus is one more time praying, and here they are one more time sleeping. Kind of like being a preacher, you know. You're up here one more time preaching and one more time you're watching people sleep. No, no, it's not that bad. (laughs) Jesus is, he's pouring out his heart to God. And you would think the disciples would at least be paying enough attention to kind of, they've said to him, teach us how to pray. So you think when he goes and prays that they, particularly he calls, he doesn't call all 12 of them, it's just these three guys. You'd think they could stay awake long enough to actually watch the prayer of Jesus and enter into prayer with him. But apparently not. They, uh, they, they're sleeping. And, but as these events unfold, they awaken. Something miraculous is going to occur. There's a transformation. It's actually where we get the English word metamorphosis from. Jesus metamorphosizes in front of them. His face begins to glow. His his clothes begin to glow. In fact, the word that Luke uses here is the word for the lightning, you know, a flash of lightning. This is like, if you've ever been very close to a lightning strike, it's it's a pretty invigorating experience. This is that kind of a a whiteness, that kind of a brightness. It's, It's just almost blinding. We should also note, Jesus could display this kind of, of deity anytime he wanted to. This was, this was at the will of Jesus. If, if Jesus could have, you know, you see those old medieval paintings, right, where everybody's walking around with halos, you know. Uh, the fact is that Jesus could have literally walked around with just this little bit of glow about him. He didn't, by the way, but he could have. Jesus could have presented himself to the nation in such a way that they could not deny that he was who he said he was. He does plenty of miracles, but he could have done this. He could have appeared in dazzling white all the time. He doesn't. 
Jesus is going to allow the people around him to make up their minds based on the miracles that he does, and he's not going to make people believe. He's going to present the miracles, and he's going to present the teaching, and then you're going to have to make up your mind. God is okay with our theological progression. You get saved, you hear the gospel, you understand some truths, you read the Bible, you understand more truths, you read and you understand more and more. And you know, that is the, that's the process. That's how it works. That's how discipleship works. Hopefully we are continuously going back to the word of God. And because our natural way of thinking is not God's way of thinking, we are renewing our minds, we are, we are understanding more about the scriptures, and we are being renewed and transformed God is okay with that. That is going to happen with these guys. Peter and John and James are about to have a theological transformation. They are about to have something occur to them that is going to completely turn their theological minds around. Now, Peter has figured out that Jesus is the Messiah, and because Jesus affirms that, I'm sure that James and Peter and all the rest of them, uh, uh, James and John and all the rest of them, have all kind of gone, oh yeah, yeah, he's actually the Messiah. Oh, and by the way, we shouldn't tell anybody. Now, watch what happens. So here's Jesus. He's completely metamorphosized. He's completely changed in front of them. His, His very clothes are glowing. His face is glowing. And as they're, you know, awakening and rubbing their eyes, and, and here we are on the top of this mountain. Speak of a mountaintop experience, right? Here they are watching this, and the next thing you know, verse 30, behold, two men are talking with him, Moses and Elijah. We don't know if we actually get the scene. You know, we don't know if this is, oh, by the way, Peter, Moses, Moses, Peter. We don't know exactly how that all went, but we know that they know. So here Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah. Why Moses and Elijah? Well, Moses, I mean, Moses is the lawgiver. If you are Jewish, if you are a religious Jewish person, Moses is the most prominent person in all of your theology. No one exceeds Moses. Moses is the giver of the law. He's the guy that gave the Ten Commandments. He's the guy that went up on the mount and actually saw God, and when he came down, his face glowed. If you might like Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, uh, Israel. You might, you might like those characters. But, but Moses, I mean, Moses is the guy that actually wrote the book of Genesis. Everything you know about Abraham is because Moses wrote about it. Everything you know about Isaac and Jacob is because Moses wrote about it. So Moses is your guy. If you want to know what sacrifice you're supposed to bring or what the temple is supposed to be designed like or how we're supposed to hang the curtains and, and what this thing is all supposed to be like, well, Moses is your guy. If you want to know exactly which sacrifice you're supposed to give and when you're supposed to give it and what sacrifice it's supposed to be, Moses. Moses is your guy. If you want to know what food you're supposed to eat, what's supposed to be on the menu here, what can we eat and what shouldn't we eat, and when should we eat it, Moses. Moses is your guy. The law is given by Moses. There is no one in Judaism that equals Moses. Moses eventually dies, of course, and even in that, God buries him. God doesn't want the children of Israel taking the body of Moses and worshiping it, getting his bones and passing them around, and who in the world knows what they might have been up to. It's like God actually, miraculously, 
intervenes, and when Moses dies, God buries him. The body of Moses has never been found. Kind of interesting as those things go. Now, when Moses is gone, we end up at the time of the judges, and that, uh, you know how that goes. And then we get the kings, but during the kings, they don't do so well either, and so God sends prophets. Now, there were lots of prophets, but you know, there's one prophet that just kind of, I mean, if you want to, you want to talk about prophets. I mean, fire and brimstone, right? The guy who really gets up and says, thus says the Lord, and literally has the power to call down fire. Literally. He does it on numerous occasions. Elijah is your guy. This is the guy who stands up and declares, I mean, he goes before Ahab and says, I serve the Lord God, and I don't care who you are. It is not going to rain until I say so, and stomps off. I mean, that's a prophet. And by the way, it doesn't rain until he says so. Three and a half years, it doesn't rain. I mean, this, this Elijah, is your guy. If you are Mount Carmel, again, another mountaintop experience, right? He gets up there, challenges the prophets of Baal. So if you want the prophetic voice, if you, if you really think the prophets speak for God, Elijah's your guy. All right, so here you've got the lawgiver, Moses, and you've got the prophet, Elijah. So the question is, if you're Jewish, this is the law and the prophets. I mean, here you are. They're embodied. Moses and Elijah. Here's the question. Does Jesus equal these guys? Now, you, we as Christians, you know, we're kind of, oh, come on, that's a silly question. It wasn't silly at the time. This is a question that Peter and James and John need to answer. They're Jewish. In their way of thinking, ah, Moses is it. Elijah is it. In fact, God has said that we're not even going to have the Messiah until Elijah comes back. So these guys are definitely the prophets of God. Jesus, he's the Messiah. How does that all fit? What do we do with Moses? What do we do with Elijah? What do we, what do, we do with the prophets and the law? How does that all work? With, does Jesus actually exceed all of that? They have actually not put that together yet. They haven't really connected all of those dots yet. They need to grow into this. It is, they haven't even really put together that the Messiah is supposed to die. That was already like totally disorienting. And now, now, okay, if the Messiah is going to come and he's going to die, well, what does that do with the law? What about Moses? But we, of course, look at that and go, wait, look, guys, come on. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when he dies, Moses is replaced. It's fulfilled. We no longer are under the law. The law is, is, is done because it's been fulfilled, not nullified, just fulfilled. All the purposes for which the law needed to serve, Jesus, in his embodiment, fulfilled it. So we can now put the law aside. It's, it's no longer under the law. But they got to get there. It's okay to grow in your theological understanding. So what are they doing? They, they, verse 31, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure and which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So here Jesus has decided at this moment, at this time, to bring down Moses and Elijah and to sit and talk to them about his departure at Jerusalem, which of course is his death. Jesus is going to die. And they're sitting around talking about it. Jesus wants to have a conversation with Moses and Elijah about this. 
doesn't go into great detail. It doesn't, it doesn't tell us a whole lot, but it does tell us what the topic of conversation was. They're actually having a discussion about how this is going to go. Can you imagine if you're in heaven and you're watching Jesus and we know that the angels desire to look into this. Well, how in the world is this going? Well, Moses and Elijah are doing the same thing. Like, you sure you want to do this? I mean, you're going to go down there and you're going to die. They know who he is. They, they know who Jesus is. They've been in heaven with him. They watched Jesus as the time came for Jesus to go down and to be born. They've watched Jesus since a child. They, they have watched the life of Jesus. And at this moment now, and he's working on going to Jerusalem, they stop and come down and talk to him. Not to get too far into this, but a few items that you might want to, speaking of growing in your theology and you know, thinking carefully about things, come to find out the timeline of heaven and the timeline of earth are the same timeline. Come to find out Moses and Elijah are actually paying attention to what's going down here on earth down here. They're not up there busy with something else. They don't have some other thing going on. What in the world is God doing? Ah, God is doing this world. That's what God is doing. Jesus became a man. Not, by the way, a Vulcan or a Klingon. Just, you know, throw that out there for you. On the off chance you're getting your theology from, I don't know, someplace else. Uh, Come to find out God became a man. This world is what God is concerned about. The people of this world is who God sent his son to die for. It is us that God is focused on. Heaven is focused on us. Heaven is focused on what's going on down here. The plan and purpose of God is to redeem for himself a group of sinners who will bring honor and glory to him for eternity. That is what God is doing. There's not something else going on. There's not some other thing. It's not like, well, I don't know. My mom died. I know she's a Christian. I, I don't know if she's paying any attention to what's going on down here or not. She's probably busy with something else. Really? Exactly what else is it you think she's busy with? What, what is it you think she's doing? This is what God is doing. There isn't some other thing going on. This is what's going on. The people of heaven are watching God at work here. That's what God's doing. And we see it right here. Here are Moses and Elijah who come down and talk to Jesus about this event that hasn't yet occurred. Jesus has not yet died. And they're sitting around discussing it. It doesn't say exactly what they say, but there's clearly room for discussion. They're talking to Jesus about this event. It's an amazing thing. And by the way, it shouldn't surprise us. God is at work in this world. That's what he's doing. Hebrews 11, right? The great cloud of witnesses who are encouraging us, pushing us on. By the way, don't, we're not talking to them. We're not, you know, don't go somewhere strange here, okay? But when you get to heaven, you finally have your eyes open to the plan and purpose of God. What is the plan and purpose of God? To redeem a people unto himself. The, the throne of God, what's, every time you look at the throne of God, what's going on is they're paying attention to earth. I just look. Look in Daniel. Look in Isaiah. Look in Ezekiel. Look in Revelation. The whole thing, everyone in heaven is all paying attention to what's going on on earth. Job, the book of Job, it's all God having this... Discussion with Satan. Where you been? I'm wandering around on the earth. 
Have you observed my servant Job? I mean, how's that not happening if they're not on the same timeline? If that's, you know, obviously what's going on at the throne of God is a discussion about what's going on on earth. That is what God is doing. So these guys, here they are. They're standing there. They're actually watching. Now, they know Jesus is the Messiah. They've seen miracles. They've seen lots of miracles. I mean, come on. They, they've seen water turned into wine, right? I, as things get going, you discover that that's really kind of a, not much of a miracle. But if you've never seen any water turned into wine, it's pretty amazing. And then next thing you know, the lame are walking. And then before you know it, the lepers are cleansed. And, and then the guy with the withered hand is restored. And, and someone born blind actually has the ability to see. The demons are, are cast out with no effort whatsoever. Jesus just speaks the word and they run screaming. And, and then before you know it, Jesus has actually brought someone back from the dead. Wow. And you're thinking, can it get more than this? And before you know it, Jesus is literally walking across the water to you. An event, by the way, which didn't occur that much prior to this event. But when we come to this event, this, this event is in a category all its own. And here is Peter and James and John and Jesus. And this is not just a guess. This is not just a, yeah, I think he's, he's, he's an exceptional guy. There's no doubt about it. I, I mean, he's like one of those prophets for sure. In fact, he's actually the Messiah. He, guess what? He's more than that. He literally begins to glow as bright as lightning in front of you. There is this. This is just astounding. It doesn't get any bigger than this. The miracles, just, they don't exceed this. And then he's talking to Moses and Elijah. Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah. I mean, I know we're trying to connect our theology here, but I'm, he's talking to Moses and Elijah. He's easily on the same plane as them which kind of intellectually you might have been able to connect, but you don't have to anymore. He's standing there talking to them. Verse 32, now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And of course, they get done talking and they begin to leave. The two guys, had they got to go back to heaven, right? And as they were leaving, Peter... <clears throat> You gotta love Peter, right? I mean, you gotta love this guy. I mean, I, you know, you read Peter, he's like, eh, yeah, no wonder he's in the Bible. He's just like me, right? Peter just can't, just can't shut up, right? Peter, just zip it. You know, this. You have just watched the very Son of God talking to Moses and Elijah. Do you really have anything to say here? Really? Do you actually have anything to add to this conversation? No, but I'm gonna add it anyway. Okay. So Peter said to Jesus. Master, I, I think it's really good that we've been here. Yeah. And you know, if you just, just stopped right there, you, uh, here's what we need to do. Let's make three buildings. Religion, right? Got to love them buildings, you know? Throw them buildings out there. We've got to have a building. Let's get three tabernacles. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. I mean... Isn't this great? we got the law, the prophets, and the Messiah. I mean, you know, all nice level even here. We're going to build three of them. It's, uh, you know what? That's actually a problem. Not realizing what he's saying. Jesus is greater. 
Jesus is not just another Moses. He is not just another Elijah. He's, he's not just giving a new law or giving a new prophecy. Jesus is completely beyond Moses and Elijah. Now, come the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God actually indwells them. Peter will, I mean, he will finally get his act together and he will finally understand and he will get up and preach appropriately and, and he'll finally say the things that he needs to say. But until that moment, he's still just out there trying to, you know, wiggle his way around. Now, while he was saying this, I mean, they've, they've departed. Jesus is, I, there's every reason to think he's still glowing, blazing here. While he is saying this, a cloud now begins to form and overshadows them. A bright cloud, according to Matthew. And they're following Jesus. I mean, it's time to move on. And, they're fo- and, and this bright cloud, they are afraid as they enter the cloud. We want to walk into this thing? Um, this is the same cloud, by the way. This is Shekinah glory of God, right? This is the same cloud that filled the temple. This was the, when Solomon, he built the temple and then the singers sang. Note, the temple doesn't get filled with God until the singers sing. It's a great thing to notice. I mean, they do a lot of stuff. The sacrifice is not, it's not until the singers sing. Then the Spirit of God comes. It's a great thing. But the Spirit of God, this cloud comes and it just drives everybody out of the temple complex. It's a, we've all got to go out because the cloud is there. This is the same cloud that leads the children of Israel by day, you know, a pillar of fire by night and a cloud during the day. Same, same cloud. Have you ever been lost in a cloud? You ever, ever get yourself up on a mountain, maybe, and been lost in a cloud? So I went snowboarding with my son. He was in high school at the time, I, I don't know, sophomore, junior, could have been a senior, I don't know, somewhere in there. And we had been snowboarding, and it was a mountain we were familiar with. But we got on this lift, there was a, a you got two-thirds up on one lift, and then the last third was an open lift, you know, it's three seats, and you just sit on this thing. So we're sitting on this thing, and it's headed up to the top of the mountain. We get to the top of the mountain, and I have never been in this situation ever. As this thing rises to the top and you get off, I don't know if you've ever, you know, any of you have ever done snowboarding, getting off the lift is really exciting. You know, you've only got one foot in that thing and, you know, it's to get down, you, anyway. So when we got there, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. If I'd have had a brain in my head, I would have suggested that we just ride that thing back down, but I didn't. We got off. Get to the top. It's there. We got off. <laughs> The wind is howling. Uh, The wind is, we're at the top of a mountain. The wind is howling. The fog, the snow, you can't see your hand in front of your face. I have no idea which way is up or down. I mean, you're on a mountain, so, you know, down is not too far away, but I can't see anything. My son, he's gone. He's totally gone. I can't see my board. I, you know, you bend down to get your foot in the board, and you're like, okay, now what am I going to do? You can't, you can't hear yourself think. I mean, the wind is howling. Completely disorienting. So I'm like, well, I can't, I, 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 I'm not going to take my board off and wander around up here looking for him. So I'm going to assume 
He's got a brain in his head. So I'm just going to go down. So you put the board on, you just kind of move around until you start moving. You're like, oh, well, the board at least knows which way down is. I can't, I can't tell. I, 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 can't, I can't see my feet. But you notice that you're moving, and the next thing you know, I pop down onto the trail. There's only one trail, and you're down under the trees, finally, and uh, there's my son standing there waiting for me. By God's amazing grace, you suddenly realize how people die on mountaintops. And the snow, I mean, the snow is just, you know, it's a blizzard. Terrible. I, I've been in bad weather. I've never been in that bad. So it's extremely disorienting. These guys have walked into this bright cloud. They can't see anything. They are now just standing in this cloud. You can, they're afraid to enter the cloud. Why? If we get in this cloud, we can't see anything. And while they're in there, what you're doing is every sense you've got, you're trying to look, you're trying to hear, you're trying to see, you're trying to make sure you don't get lost, that you don't fall off the cliff. And while they're in this most attentive state, they are in a totally disoriented, cannot see where they are, cannot see where they're going. They are completely dependent on what? God, who speaks to them. A voice comes out of the cloud and says this. Now that I've got your attention, now that I have you where you cannot depend on yourself, you have no idea where you're going, you have no, you're totally disoriented, which, oh, by the way, theologically, you're still totally disoriented. Let me clarify this for you. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice spoke, it all went away, and there's Jesus standing. Jesus. It's all about Jesus. No more Moses. He's greater than Moses. No more Elijah. He's greater than Elijah. The voice of God is gone. Now you have Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Study the life of Jesus. Seek to be like Jesus. Try to understand who Jesus is and what he's doing and what he says. And then you will be able to be the person you need to be. Pay attention to Jesus. What do they do after this event? Verse, the, the end of that verse, they, uh, they keep silent and report to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. They just kind of look at one another like, I think we're keeping this one to ourselves. We've seen enough miracles, and this one is just, uh, we're not telling anybody. Not until, of course, after the resurrection. This prepares them, this transforms them, this transforms their theology. They suddenly realize really who Jesus is. I mean, this is the moment where it just absolutely sinks in. Jesus is greater than Moses. It's hard to understand just how transformational that very thought would be. Jesus is greater than Elijah. This is the Son of God. Hear him. And if we wonder, by the way, why Jesus told him not to tell anybody he was the Messiah, Peter's little outburst there of, oh, let's make three tabernacles. It's like, that's why I don't want you to say anything. You still don't really get this. It's not until after the resurrection. Take away from this passage all the theology and get this too. God gives you what you need. God gives you what you need. And we may think, oh, I need a mountaintop experience. I need a miracle. I need, you, you know, if you need that, God will give you that. But if you haven't gotten that, guess what? You really don't need that. God doesn't need to give us all a miracle. Even this 
miraculous event, only three of the 12 got in on it. God gives us everything we need. Everything we need. And if, and if Jesus needs to appear to you in person and talk to you, well, then he will. And if you're like, well, I don't know, I haven't had my personal talk with Jesus yet. First of all, wait, it's coming. But second of all, it may never occur in this life, and I don't think we should expect it to. We don't need that. We have the words of the prophets. In fact, this is exactly what Peter is going to say when he writes his second epistle. He says this in closing. We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Well, when was that? On the Mount of Transfiguration. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Sound familiar? It should. It's the passage we're looking at. This is the Mount of Transfiguration. We ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the Holy Mount. So, we had the prophetic word made more sure. We've got the prophets, but this is even more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. We know the word of God is true. Peter tells us, John tells us, Jesus tells us. Let's trust God and direct. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this amazing passage. We thank you that we can know for sure, that you are greater than Moses, greater than Elijah, that you can bring a new covenant, and you have done so. May we trust you and know you, and may we continue to have our theology renewed and truth brought forth to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.